many of you will know, back in uh, 2013, I had the opportunity to trek to the base camp of Mount Everest. It was a trip that I'd wanted to do for my whole life, really. Um, and all the way up to the flight out, the excitement and the trepidation was building and building. The idea of getting up close and personal with the world's highest mountain was exciting, but also the thought of being at such altitude and the, the risks of dangerous flights into the mountains, freezing conditions, being away from family, all that sort of stuff, um, that was scary as well. Uh, and then when you get uh, to, to Nepal, you're, you're, in the, you're thrown into the busyness of Kathmandu, um, and then you get in this tiny little plane that flies you up to a tiny little village called Lukla, which is about 2,500 metres up in altitude. And from there you begin your hiking. And you're trekking higher and higher each day, and you make your way through the mountains, um, through forests, and there's lots of greenery. And if, as you get higher and higher and the altitude increases, that greenery kind of disappears and it gives way to rock and snow and ice. Um, the mountains start getting bigger and you start seeing these snow-capped peaks. Um, and then you stop at a place called uh, Nanche Bazaar, it's the Sherpa capital, uh, and you stay there for a couple of days for acclimatisation. And on the second day you're there, you do this acclimatisation trek where you go a couple of hundred metres up in altitude just to kind of get you used to it. Um, and before you set out on that trek, you're told that today is going to be the day that you're going to see Mount Everest for the first time. You've already been there for about five days, I think, at that point, but there's no sign of Everest yet. It's the biggest mountain in the world, but it's hidden by lots of others. Uh, but today's the day you're going to see it. And so as you set off, um, and you're going up in altitude, you're going very slowly, um, and that excitement is building. You're picking your way through the snow and the ice and the rock, and the anticipation and the excitement is building more and more. There's still a nervousness because you know you're going higher. How are you going to deal with that altitude? Will you suffer with altitude sickness? And you slowly make your way up the trail. And eventually you round this corner and you're confronted with this big long valley. And then down at the end of the valley you see it for the first time, the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. And at this point you just stop and stare and everyone in the group does the same. You don't talk, you don't make any exclamation. You literally just stop and stare Stand in silence and awe of the view in front of you, the highest mountain in the world. It's still a long way in the, in, in the distance at the moment. And, and you see this snow being blown off its peak by 100 mile an hour winds. Uh, and it's surrounded by these dozens of other beautiful mountains backed by the bluest of skies. And the crunch of snow under your boots disappears and then you come to a halt and there's this complete stillness. All of the anticipation and excitement have built and built up until this climactic moment. Perhaps you've experienced something similar, maybe not Mount Everest, perhaps a musical performance or a production that you've watched and it's just left you in awe. Perhaps another piece of nature, something else you've seen, that you've just had to stop and stare and wonder in silence. Often when we experience something that we enjoy, something that excites us, our reaction is to cheer, to clap, to talk about it. But sometimes there are things that we experience that transcend any of that. And our natural reaction is just to stop and be quiet. And such moments are rare in our lives, aren't they? And they remind us that silence isn't always just about a pausing conversation or about boredom. It's not simply a lack of noise, but instead an experience of something much deeper and much more profound. It's a time to experience something that would otherwise be drowned out by all the babble and noise of the world. And this is kind of where we're at after the interlude of chapter 7 in Revelation as we read the beginning of chapter 8 
As we go through this morning, if you've got your Bibles, do have them open. We say that just particularly in this book. Uh, we go through it pretty much verse by verse, so it's really helpful to, to be able to follow along. As John sees the Lamb open the seventh and final seal at the beginning there, we read that there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. A sense of awe, expectation and anticipation. The otherwise ceaseless praise of the four living creatures dies away. The song of the elders, the angels and the huge countless crowds falls away. Everyone just seems to be holding their breath. This, we sense, is the moment that they've all been waiting for. And we watch, hardly daring to breathe ourselves. We have, after all, waited long enough. Well, it feels like we have. Throughout chapter 6, we watched, probably in dismay, as, a, as the lamb removed the seals from the scroll, which was handed to him by the one on the throne, the four horsemen, then the souls under the altar, then the terror seizing the earth's inhabitants. And then there was a pause with God's faithful people being sealed so that the great damage that was about to be done on the earth when God's judgment came sweeping through would not harm them. And in that pause that we considered last week, we were privileged to glimpse God's protective plans for his people, but also his eternal plans for his whole creation. But now we come to the seventh seal. If we're expecting something even more spectacular than the great display of praise and worship around the throne, we might be disappointed by this sudden silence. But if we've learned anything by this book, we should realise that this sudden hush tells us something, something huge, something powerful, something utterly decisive is now going to happen. The silence comes at the end of the seventh seal, the seven seals, which have been building to the climax of God's judgment on the world. The prospect of judgment should make the whole world fall into silence. As Zechariah 2, verse 13 tells us, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The fact that this period of silence is half an hour, like many other references to numbers in the book, is not meant to be taken as a literal 30-minute period of time, but instead it indicates a finite period of time. In scripture, when a period of time is split in half, it usually indicates a transition or a sudden change in direction. A good example is the judgment of God when it comes on Egypt at midnight in Exodus 12. Midnight is literally translated from the Hebrew, which is literally translated as half-night. So again, the time is split in two. So this half-hour period in Revelation, this half-hour period of time, informs us that something is going to happen, but it also creates a space for something important to take place that we uncover as we go. Excuse me. So the first series of seven comes to an end, and as it does so, the next series of seven begins in the sounding of the seven trumpets in chapters eight and nine. Remember, this doesn't mean that the three series of the seals, the trumpets and the bowls are meant to be understood as following one another chronologically. But rather, it's more about seeing the same thing, but from different angles. The trumpets are presented in a similar way to the the seals, in that the first four trumpets parallel one another, and then they're followed by a more extended description of the fifth and sixth trumpets. And then there's an interval, as there was with the seals, an interval between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And that ushers in an anticipation of the end. There's also a similarity to the seven bowls, which will follow later in chapters 15 and 16. 
And in these last two sequences, we find some of the most disturbing images of violence and judgment in the book. And it's vital that we read these within Revelation's symbolic world, which is shaped by both its cultural context, i.e. the time it was written in, and by Old Testament imagery. And the most important and most obvious of these Old Testament images is the ten plagues of Egypt. And between the trumpets and the bowls, seven of those ten plagues are alluded to here in Revelation. But as usual, they are adapted to say something different. The most notable change that we see in both sequences um, of the impact of judgment, sorry, is that the impact of judgment is partial rather than total. So in the plague narratives in Exodus chapter 7 to 12, God's judgment is total. Every Egyptian is affected by it. No Egyptian is spared from the plagues. However, here, if you read through, the effects of the plagues are partial. Not everyone or everything is impacted by the plagues that are unleashed on the earth. There is a clear space for repentance, as well as the assumption that God's people are protected from these judgments. They were sealed in the vision in chapter 7, weren't they? We're introduced in, uh, here to seven angels in verse 2. And these seem to be different angels to any that we've come across so far in the book. For John's early readers, they probably would have assumed that these were the seven archangels of Jewish tradition. The angels Uriel, Raphael, Ragel, Michael, Sariel, Gabriel and Remiel. Most of those we don't know those names. There's two that we do, Gabriel and uh, Michael. They're the only two that appear in our Bibles. But the others all appear in other Jewish writings of the, to- of the time. They're powerful angels that are authorised to act on behalf of God himself. And here they are given these seven trumpets. Now trumpets were commonly used in ancient times for a variety of purposes. For Jewish people it's known as the shofar, S-H-O-F-A-R, not someone that drives a car. Um, And they are made of a ram's horn. Um, And it was used to call people to worship, to sound the alarm or to rouse people to battle. And one of the most famous uses in the Bible of the shofar is when Joshua led the Israelites around the city of Jericho. And the blowing of the trumpets caused the destruction of its walls. They were also associated with God's presence on Sinai, of God coming down to earth with the law. And that's why Paul speaks of the trumpet sounding at Christ's return in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's when God returns at last to the earth. However, the most likely use of the trumpets here is associated with passages such as Joel 2 verse 1 and Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 16 which speak of the trumpet sounding at the coming judgment of the day of the Lord. Ezekiel 33, verses 1 to 6, also we read of how the trumpet warns the people of the coming judgment so that they have the opportunity to to turn away from their ways, to repent and to come back to God, thereby saving themselves from his wrath. And this is surely the image that we are to take here as we begin the sounding of the trumpets. Judgment is coming, but there is an opportunity to repent. Another angel then comes and stands at the altar and he's holding a golden censer. If you're not sure what a censer is, it's one of those gold things that you swing in the big high churches where the incense comes out of. Um, And remember, back in chapter 5, we heard about the incense offered by the elders. And what was it? It was the prayers of the saints. It was the prayers of you and I. Well, here we see that the angel is given much incense, which is added to the prayers of the saints. Here we see that our own prayers are joined with the prayers of heaven. Again, we see this beautiful coming together of God's space and our space, heaven and earth, combining in prayer. 
This seems to be the real reason behind the silence that we see at the beginning of the chapter, to allow the prayers of the saints and these heavenly prayers to be heard. Something that supports this idea is that in the temple of Jerusalem, the incense and sacrifice were to be offered in complete silence. In some Jewish thought, the praises of heaven must pause for a while so that the prayers of Israel are given a proper hearing. What this leads us to is that the seven trumpets and what they bring is due in part to God answering the prayers of his people. The sequence of divine judgments that are necessary for evil to be conquered are in part in answer to our prayers. What is it that Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A prayer that millions and millions of Christians have lifted up to God for over 2,000 years. For God's kingdom and will to be acted fully here on earth, all sin and all evil needs to be dealt with once and for all. Then we will see the answer to that prayer in its fullest. Also, we mustn't forget the prayers of the saints under the altar who called out for vindication and justice. And here we begin to see how God answers those prayers. Ultimately, God may not have answered the prayers of many Christians during their lifetime, but that doesn't mean their prayers are wasted. Often our prayers are answered in ways that we aren't aware of, and sometimes that may be long after we have died. But our prayers are always heard. And here we are shown that, as ever, God wants to work in the world, not alone, but through his people and through their prayers. The angel then takes the combined prayers of heaven and earth and combines them with fire from the altar. Throughout the Bible, fire is depicted as as a way of cleansing and purifying. Numbers 31.23 says this, Everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean. Or Proverbs 17 verse 3, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. So the angel throws this fiery incense onto the earth in verse 5. The vision here is of a divine collaboration as the combined prayers of heaven and earth are joined with God's purifying power and thrown down on the earth as he brings about his judgment upon evil and sin. It is our prayers that join with God's purification that help bring an end to evil and sin once and for all. Thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and earthquakes come at the close of each section of the book. We saw it for the first time in front of God's throne in chapter 4 verse 5 and here they appear at the closing of the seven seals and then in chapter 11 they come at the end of the seven trumpets being sounded and then in chapter 16 after the seven bowls of wrath have been poured out they appear once again. They're here to remind us again of the events of Mount Sinai in the Exodus of God coming down to earth to give the law to Moses There we read in chapter 19 of Exodus of the thunders and lightnings and thick cloud and the mountain trembling. Again, the purpose is to remind us of God coming down to earth to act. And then from verse 6, we're told about the blowing of the trumpets by the angels. And from this point on, we could be justified for asking God a question. Why, if this is your creation that you made, that you have called good, that you love and you want to redeem, why would you sanction such meaningless destruction on it? Over the coming verses, on first reading, we see what seems to be the destruction of a third of the earth, the trees, the sea, its creatures, rivers, even the sun, moon and stars. Why? 
How is this destruction in any way redeeming that good creation? Remember, we have to... Sorry, firstly, we have to remember that we are not to take every word of revelation literally. It doesn't mean that literally one-third of the earth and the seas and so on are going to be destroyed. Instead, he is talking about God's drastic action to purify the world and to cleanse the world of evil. To cut back, as one would, a tree that had become dangerously diseased, removing the deadly cancer so that the rest might be saved. Many in the world will try to convince you that the world is a better place than it was a thousand or two thousand years ago, that our enlightenment and our technological advances have made it so. But the reality is evil still very much exists in our world. The horrors of war, genocide, slavery, enforced famine and the like are still very much clear to see in many places across the world. Human systems and structures mean that these things still take place. And this book lets us know that God doesn't come to perform a minor operation on it all. Only major surgery will do. But the key to this is to remember what John is alluding to. Again, the plagues of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 7 to 12, there are ten plagues which strike both the people and the land. And they function as a warning to the Egyptians of the power of the God of Israel. However, at each plague, there is an opportunity for repentance, isn't there? An opportunity to turn around and listen to God. They don't take it, but there is that opportunity. But the plagues are also the means by which God's people escape at Passover. And John wants his readers, and us included, to be assured of the same result. Just as Egypt was smitten with plagues as both a warning and a means of liberation, so too will the whole earth be smitten with similar plagues, in order to warn its inhabitants and to deliver God's people. John doesn't repeat the plagues of Exodus one by one, but it's impossible to miss the illusion. A few times as we have gone through this book, we have likened Revelation to an orchestral piece of music, different instruments playing their part but telling the same story, the idea of building towards a crescendo. Even the silence at the beginning of this chapter is like the dramatic pause before the whole orchestra thunders back in together. But if we are to imagine Revelation as a piece of music, it seems that the story of the Exodus is the key that that music is written in. It's what runs throughout the whole book. We have to come back to it time and time again. John's readers, John's first readers, that would have been forefront of their minds. And so for the rest of this chapter, we hear about the first four trumpets and the devastating impact that their sounding has on the earth. The first trumpet of hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown upon the earth. In ancient times, hail and fire were generally understood to be signs of divine judgment. And this reminds us of the seventh of the Exodus plagues. If you remember back to the beginning of chapter 7, we saw that the four winds of the earth were held back so that the earth and the trees weren't harmed. However, here we see that their destruction is now allowed to be unleashed. Destruction of trees would mean the shortage of fruit, including important staple foods of the time, such as olives, grapes and figs, whilst the destruction of all green grass would make it nearly impossible to feed cattle and sheep, thereby impacting upon the supply of things like meat, milk and cheese. However, where is in Exodus, the destruction of the plagues was total. Here, only a third of the earth is affected. Judgment is only partial and is a warning again to repent. 
Then when John's early readers heard about the great mountain burning with fire in verse 8, they would again have been reminded of the visit of God to Mount Sinai. But they also wouldn't fail to be reminded of a huge disaster of their times. This book, Revelation, was probably written in the late 80s and 90s AD. Only 10 to 15 years earlier, Mount Vesuvius had erupted, pouring its pyroclastic flow and lava into the sea and into the towns of Herculaneum and Pompeii, killing many, many people. John uses this image and people's memories of that sort of disaster as a metaphor for divine cosmic judgment and catastrophe. Jesus also uses the image of a mountain being thrown into the sea when foretelling the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. The sea turning red alludes back to the first of the ten Egyptian plagues, but again the judgment is partial, it's not total. In the same way that the Egyptians relied on food, uh, sorry, relied on the Nile for food and for commerce, the Romans relied on the sea. Fish was a massively important part of people's diet in the Mediterranean, much more so than meat. And so a loss of the third of all the creatures in the sea would have been seen as a serious threat. In the same way, a loss of a third of all the ships would have been seen as a military and economic disaster. Ships played a huge part in warfare, but they were also incredibly important for the import and export of goods. With the third angel, we have a great star falling from heaven, blazing like a torch. This would have been understood as being a meteor, and the falling of stars from the sky was understood to correspond to the deaths of many people or to the fall of famous rulers and leaders of the world. The star was called Wormwood. Wormwood was a bitter herb, and it's mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, and it was considered to be poisonous. The polluting of water with this bitter substance so that the water was no longer drinkable was again seen as a sign of divine judgment since water is essential for life. John's readers would again have been reminded of the Exodus story and the bitter waters of Mara, which got purified in the desert in Exodus 15. In that story, those bitter waters are a symbol for the past life of sin and slavery of the Israelites that God purifies and makes clean. The events of the fourth trumpet closely match the events of the ninth plague against Egypt. However, again, the darkness it is created by the loss of a third of the sun, the moon and the stars is partial rather than total. Again, in ancient times, the dimming of the sun and moon was considered to be a sign of looming disaster. In Isaiah 13, the prophet foretells a judgment against Babylon. He says in verse 10, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Whether this means that the sun, moon and stars will lose a third of their brightness or whether a third of the day will have no light, the point here is less about the description and more about the significance as a sign of divine judgment. At the end of the chapter, we have another case of John looking and hearing. We've seen it many times throughout Revelation. And this time he hears and looks at uh, an eagle crying with a loud voice. What the eagle represents isn't Very clear. However, in Roman culture, eagles were considered to be communicators of divine will and they formed the insignia for the Roman legions. In the Old Testament, eagles were used as a metaphor for God's rescue and provision. The cry of woe that the eagle cries out is a declaration of God's judgment often found spoken by prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah as well as Jesus himself. The term comes 14 times in Revelation. 
And this threefold use here calls the reader to pay attention, but also relates to the three woes that will come with the blowing of the three remaining trumpets. The cry of the eagle makes it clear who these judgments are going to befall, those who dwell on the earth. They are not God's people, but a term that is used ten times in this book to refer to those who have rejected God, those opposed to his purposes and his people. The same people that attempted to hide amongst the rocks and mountains at the end of chapter 6. It is they to whom these events serve as a dire warning. The purpose of reusing the imagery of the plagues from Egypt is to make John's readers think back to God's decisive action in the past. Reminding us of God's work in history is our firmest assurance for the future. If God judged those who oppressed our spiritual predecessors, then we can be assured that he will also, in due time, overturn the powers that seek to crush his people now. For the first readers of this book, those earth dwellers, those who sought to oppress his people, were the Roman Empire. Within a couple of generations, judgment would come upon Rome. God would allow the plagues to befall that mighty empire in judgment against their treatment of his people and rejection of his word. Very much as he has done the same, had already done the same against the might of Assyria, Babylon and even Jerusalem itself in the past. The sounding of the first four trumpets demonstrates God's power over the natural elements. And for ancient readers, the sometimes terrifying events that they saw around them were often interpreted as signs of doom and disaster. John's account of the first four trumpets transforms their understanding of these disasters and informs them that God allows such events to occur within his judgment. Our world often sees natural disasters such as earthquakes, tsunamis and other such events as things that seem to stem from chaos. However, Revelation reveals to us that behind such seeming chaos is an ordered God. Going back to our orchestral theme, the events described here are like the screeching discords of a few rebellious out-of-tune instruments jarring against the beauty of the melody. But steadily in the background is the great conductor, the rhythm of the sovereignty of God. (coughs) God doesn't conduct the events of the trumpet blasts, but he permits them to happen. Even though it temporarily affects the beauty of his masterpiece, God no more creates chaos and disaster than a candle creates the darkness of the shadows that the light of its flame throws against a wall. But whilst he permits it to take place, none of it is out of his control. Instead, it serves as a warning that all who reject him need. Shelter from these coming storms is not found in the emperor of Rome's promise of peace and prosperity, in the same way that it isn't found in the empty praises offered by every false god or idol of every generation. Instead, protection is found in turning to the one who permits and controls it all, the living God who is the creator of the world and the redeemer of its people. Throughout these opening four trumpets, the offer of repentance is there, and we'll see it shine through even more in the remaining three trumpets and for the rest of the book. What this all tells us is that God has acted and will continue to act in judgment throughout history. What is often simply dismissed as natural phenomenon is often in fact God allowing the natural world to get the attention of his creation, 
to make us sit up and realise that really we're not in control, that we are small and effectively powerless. But he doesn't allow these things to happen out of spite or as a way of showing just how big and powerful he is. His judgment is an act of love. It's a call to repent and to turn back to him. And the other incredible thing that this chapter shows us is that our prayers are a part of that. God's people are contributing to this process for our faithful prayers as they pray for the justice of God and as they ask for his kingdom come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers are a part of the testing and the sifting of humanity. We often think of God acting in judgment at the return of Christ, but the Bible shows us time and time again of how he acted against those that opposed him and against his people. And God has continued to act in judgment throughout history since. Just as he judged the Babylonians and such, he went on to judge the Romans, the Mongols, the Egyptians, the Ottomans, the Nazis and every other empire that sought to rule over God's creation through force and violence, particularly those who oppressed his people. He will continue to judge those who act against him. And this chapter shows us that allowing the natural world to bring disaster is sometimes the way that that judgment comes. Ultimately, that judgment will reach a pinnacle when God finally brings his full judgment on the whole earth. But what is also clear is that right up until the end, he gives the opportunity for repentance. We will continue to look at how God judges and offers redemption throughout the final three trumpets and into the rest of the book after Christmas. As I said earlier, you're probably pleased to know we've got a little bit of a break from the heaviness of Revelation until the new year. But for now, what does this chapter say to us today? Well, the truth is we continue to live in relative peace and comfort as Christians in this country, don't we? The idea of persecution and suffering for the gospel is actually pretty alien to us. But that isn't the case across the world. Many, many Christians suffer in the same way that those early Christians did. They might not face the Roman Empire, but they do face corrupt governments and pressures of false religions. Like the martyrs under the altar, their prayers are for justice and vindication. And as we pray for God's will to be done and his kingdom to come, we join with their prayers. And those combined prayers are added to the fire of God's purification process for this world. Our prayers have the power to shape human history, to bring about judgment of evil and redemption for those who turn from that evil. Never forget just how important and eternal your prayers are.